The What Matters in EdTech series is produced by the EdTech Podcast and supported by BET. For anyone who doesn't know, BET is the first industry show of the year in the education technology landscape, bringing together over 800 leading companies, 103 exciting new EdTech startups, and over 34,000 attendees. People from over 146 countries in the global education community come together to celebrate, find inspiration, and discuss the future of education, as well as seeing how technology and innovation enable educators and learners to thrive. The BET 2020 seminar program is CPD accredited and provides over 300 hours of workshops, talks, and discussions addressing issues around SEND and inclusion, future tech and trends, well-being, innovation, skills, and empowering teaching and learning. In fact, all the areas this podcast series covers across six episodes. To find out more and to register for free, go to www.betshow.com. This week's podcast episode is supported by Redway Networks. Future-proof for your school's network for free by winning the latest Wi-Fi 6 technology, fully installed, courtesy of Redway Networks. One lucky school will be able to improve connectivity and enable staff and students to push and explore educational possibilities without limitations. This competition is open to all schools and colleges in the UK until the 18th of December 2019. So what are you waiting for? Enter today at www.redwaynetworks.com forward slash win. I think a big thing has been digital responsibilities. I mean, the face-to-face, even though people say it hasn't changed in Socrates, it, you know, it mm. has. It's about how do we upskill and reskill people who, who we deem to be un, unreskillable, <laughs> if that's a word. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this second episode in our series, What Matters in EdTech, supported by BET. This series is all about the things that matter in education and how and when tech might help. Over our six episodes, we will be looking at themes that shape BET's conference programme in 2020, namely future tech and trends, well-being, innovation, empowering teaching and learning and skills. And if you haven't already, don't forget to go back and check out our previous episode on special educational needs and disabilities and inclusion. We'd love to hear from you. Tweet us using the hashtag EdTechPodcast and Bet2020. This week's episode is all about future tech and trends in teaching and learning. Predicting the future is notoriously difficult. But there is value to be drawn in sharing ideas on where time and energy is being focused and why. Across the 40 podcast episodes published this year, we've heard a great deal about the importance of mentors and of building networks and learner experience outside of traditional academic and qualification-focused learning. We've heard about artificial intelligence and its limitations, and the power of virtual reality to simulate real-life learning experiences with associated lower cost and risk. We've heard much more about the importance of combining disciplines like computer science and ethics, as well as increased policy focus on vocational and lifelong learning. We've also heard much more about how new forms of assessment might be the driver for future technical and pedagogical innovation, but also the realities of sparse connectivity and funding, especially in some of our more rural areas, and how innovation is happening in and around these limiting factors. But what do our guests think about any future tech and trends in teaching and learning? If you can look into the seeds of time and say which grain will grow and which will not, speak then unto me, so said William Shakespeare in Macbeth. And so in this episode, we do just that. We speak to a range of educators and edtech specialists about what's capturing their attention and why. First up, data analytics and, you've guessed it, AI. Okay, brilliant. So uh, absolutely delighted to have lead computer science teacher at South Bank Engineering UTC and lecturer at Hertfordshire University and all-round legend uh, Mark Martin MBE, aka at urban underscore teacher on the line. So welcome, Mark. Thank you, Sophia. Nice to uh, uh, reconnect with you again. 
Yeah, so for the last five years, we've seen a lot to do with um, data analytics. So big ed tech companies have moved into education looking at, can they understand the data that's being produced within the classroom and outside of the classroom? It's been taglined with a lot of innovation in this space. So um, we've seen the rise of machine learning, artificial intelligence to connect with that data. Well, I'm absolutely delighted to have Charlie Rogers, editor at Education Technology on the line. So welcome, Charlie. Thanks, Sophie. Really excited to chat to you. Um, this is actually a really good time for me to talk about it. We, um, we've just released our year in review issue. So this is something I've been thinking about for the past few weeks um, quite a lot. And although there are, as you know, with tech, innumerable things that come up every year, um, for me, there are um, a couple of things that have stood out a lot. So I've heard um, an awful lot about AI this year. Um, and a lot of people referring to 2019 as the year of AI. Yeah, absolutely delighted to have Nico Lindholm, uh, who's the Programme Director at EduSpace EdTech Accelerator in Singapore on the line. So welcome, Nico. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's nice to be online with you. <laughs> there are not as many EdTech companies popping up uh, then there maybe should be popping up uh, because the need here is huge. So you look at K to or pre-K to K to 12 or higher ed, or then especially workforce development, workforce training. So all of these different four segments, there's a huge need for edtech currently. So I'll start from the pre-K. So pre-K sector in Singapore is huge. Uh, you have more or less preschools, kindergartens, whatever you might want to call them, but you have them in I don't know, every every 200 meters, 300 meters, there's a, a center of a kind. And of course, you don't have to have them completely digitalized. That's not the point. But maybe they have not yet even started on that track yet. So, so there's, a, there's a big need for that. So let's say, for example, a, a platform where parents the, the, the children and, and the, the educators will be able to communicate uh, where the platform would be showing how the daily curriculum is implemented. Uh, so those, we have some of them here, but not in, not, not in all schools at all. So this kind of communication platforms platform is, is crucial to have here, but they don't really exist yet in that sense. Uh, then when you look at the KH12, so you have... Uh, the international private schools, private sector, and then you have the Ministry of Education-run public sector. So you have Ministry of Education, and then you have schools directly underneath it. You don't have any municipal schools as we do have in Finland or, or uh, districts or so on. Well, you have districts, but, but not in the same way as in other countries because of the, the small uh, size, geographical size of Singapore. So the MOE here is quite active in the tech space. Uh, they are building their own products, they, they are building like complete holistic platforms which are then linked to different tools that can provide more data. So they're really striving for this data-driven education sector in Singapore. And they have started this in 2013. And of course, as they are doing such a major, major uh, innovation in a sense, uh, uh, it's slowly to uh, take whatever flight, I don't know the right word, word. so people are slow to start using it. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> but in the long run, I believe that if they're able to push it through, then then Singapore is, is going to be one of those front-runner front countries in, ed, in edtech from that side, from the public sector side. And then if you look at higher education, you have five polytechnics, have, uh, mm. what, four, four or five universities here. So they, of course, do their higher ed, edtech and those are quite prestigious universities or polytechnics, so they are able to procure whatever they need. Mm. But at the same time, they have not been able to because the market doesn't have those products that they would like to see in their institutions. So I'm absolutely delighted to be on the line with Claire Buckler, who is Director of Learning Commons at the Devonport High School for Boys. So welcome, Claire. Hello, Sophie. Thanks for having me. So Claire, we've got a bit of a funny uh, backstory to this recording, which is, and I'll start right at the beginning. So Graham Brown Martin came and spoke at your school at an event that you hosted and uh, invited me to come along because it's sort of 
fairly local. Um, I then reached out to your head of the school as uh, I couldn't attend the event, but I was like, you know, that'd be really fascinating to get to know the school a bit more. Um, your head very kindly put us in contact, and then we found out that we're both residents of this very lovely and fairly small village on the outskirts of Dartmoor. So what are the chances of that? I think clearly Horrorbridge is leading the way in uh, EdTech. It certainly is. And um, yeah, there's another edupreneur, both teacher and EdTech uh, entrepreneur um, in the village as well called Ben Norris. And he's referred to it as the Silicon Walken Valley, which I quite liked. <laughs> and um, we have a radio station, don't forget, a digital one. Well, that is very true. I'm yet to host a show uh, on that station, but I'm sure it's, it's, it's bound to happen. It's just uh, a matter of time. Um, and then what was funny about this evening, so obviously we were going to meet in person because why not? We're in the same village. And then my husband ended up being at the political hustings in Plymouth. Uh, and I think yours was uh, out on a once a month burger um, evening, which is totally the right thing to do once a month. So in the end, we're on a uh, Zoom call, um, which is quite funny because you're probably a matter of meters away. Yeah, saved, saved by technology, though. So exactly. Very on trend and on theme for this episode. Um so, Claire, to go back to the beginning, um, perhaps you could tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do. Um, okay, so I work at Devonport High School for Boys. Um, Director of Learning Commons is a very grand title, but it kind of boils down to overseeing um, our digital kind of areas in the school. So that's how we roll out digital skills, um, 21st century skills to all of our students, even those ones that don't opt to take computer science. Um, I am a teacher of 15 years. I've been at Ashburton for the last 13 as head of department um, of computer science. I also um, am a Raspberry Pi educator and a Google Level 2 educator. And I also do some work for the NCCE to um, train up uh, prospective computer science teachers. Really though, looking at what's out there, I mean, it, AI would probably need to talk about, um, it's already kind of rearing its head a little bit in if you look at some of the online self-learning programs like Seneca and other ones like that where we can personalise the learning even more and I think we could be looking at um, using that much more in um, things like marking you know, if we can get, I think there's a, an app being looked at where you can actually put in sort of 10 teachers' uh, marks over an average, you, you know, if you mark, if 10 teachers, sorry, marks a piece of work, you'd get probably 10 different marks. Hmm. So would machine learning and AI kind of normalise that? I am really excited to be here because I'm here with Graham Brown-Martin, so welcome. And I know that because it's Graham Brown Martin, this is going to be a fantastic interview because of the way your brain works, and uh, just because uh, everyone knows. Yes, exactly. Um, So um, I was thinking about this in the context of lifelong learning and everyone having ten careers in their lifetime, and uh, you know, for you, we can throw in the mix um, free parties, um, advising governments, product development within startups. I think filming in war zones was one I didn't know about. So you, you're kind of like a real expert in this area. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, yeah, in a sort of arrogant way. I mean, it, it just, yeah, in a sort of, you know, if you look at my you know, resume or you know, LinkedIn profile or, or whatever, as much as I try, it doesn't make any sense. Um, although there is a sort of sense there. I mean, it, I, I mean, I guess it really, it started from the fact that school didn't work very well for me or I didn't work very well for school. I'm not saying get rid of, you know, exams, get rid of GCSEs mm. or, or, or whatever qualification you're, you're, the country that your your listeners are, are, are tuning in from. I'm not saying that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, is what we also don't need is what you know daft organisations like the OECD are suggesting, which mm. is a more sophisticated way of assessing or measuring is what they really mean because they've hijacked the language of, of, of education and teaching, measuring creativity. You know, how, sorry, I mean, Marcel Duchamp in the 20s, you know, when he put forward the, yeah. uh, you know, the, 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 the porcelain urinal and signed it, you know, how would you have measured that? And yet it changed modern art forever. 
Mm-hmm. You know, when um, Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren um, produced fashion, you know, bondage-inspired and, 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 and other material from their shop on King's Road, you know, I mean, they were almost criminalised. But it changed, it, you know, it's still having a resonation. Mm-hmm. On, on, you know, Call Britannia and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's all, you know, it still comes from all that. How would you have measured that? Um, so I, I don't think we need a measurement set. I think we already have it. It's almost what makes, it's that intangible thing that, I think if we go down the road of trying to compete with computers, we're just going to literally have a mass nervous breakdown. Whereas actually it's that intangible thing that, we are having a mass nervous breakdown. I mean, you know, you look at the... Um, and I'm not, I'm, and, and just to be clear, I'm not blaming mm. teachers or schools mm. for this. I think it's a societal issue. Mm. I think it's not just schools. I think institutions in general. Um, you know, Reedy Van Illich on de-schooling society, and he wasn't talking about schools. He was talking about the overall idea of institutionalisation of everyone. But this... And it's back to our friend Todd Rose again... I mean, this idea of trying to fit everything into sort of standard, so sort of standard-sized thinking, standard-sized people, standard-type jobs, and, you know, this idea of cogs, you know, I mean, the reason, you know, with human resources, mm. yeah? I mean, the idea that humans are human capital, you know, you have a job description and therefore you can just, you know, people are interchangeable. That's, we're talking about machines. And that was absolutely fine for the last century. Now, or we're on the precipice now of having machines to do all those things, mm. you know, we don't need them anymore. So we can now get back to the, the you know, the, the sort of more lofty ideas of, of teaching and learning, which is about self-actualization and, and maximizing human potential. And, you know, it, yes, you might not be the one that got the A in, 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 in that very siloed subject that was easy to measure. But you are brilliant mm. at this or that, you know. And, and again, not being dopey-eyed. I mean, I, I genuinely think that that everyone is 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 brilliant at something, um, and we cut a lot of that off. I mean, how many people come out of our education system believing they can't do maths? Mm. I mean, it's 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 shocking. And you only speak, like, you know, speak to proper mathematicians like Conrad Wolfram, and he'll tell you we're doing it all wrong. You know, he'll say hmm. that you don't do maths at school. You do calculating. Why are you doing calculating when you've got that on a smartphone? Oh, you banned it. I mean, it's insane, isn't it? You know, we, 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 at the end, you know, when you're 16 or whatever, and you go up for your GCSE or your, you know, your high school test, there's a big sign, isn't there, outside? You know, no phones, no watches, no calculators, no electronics, no internet, no 21st century. I mean, serious. Why are we doing that? I mean, even the Victorians allowed you to take Victorian technology into your exam. And yet we don't let you take any of the 21st century. What in. was the Victorian technology? Well, you know, it's slates, yeah. you know, rulers, chalk. It, it takes me back. Someone was sick in my maths GCSE uh, room, which kind of ruined the whole experience. Like, <laughs> uh, and for them, probably. Um, but, but, I mean, but, hmm. but, but imagine if... Imagine if I mean, I think Sagar Tamitra talked about this, um, but uh, you know, I, I also sort of thought about this some more as well because it was kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, it, it's it's there was um, a daft article in the New York Times um, that said something along the lines that um, an AI had passed a high school science test, and everyone goes, "Well, AI, it's very good, isn't it? It's going to replace us all." And I was going, "Well, that just proves that the test's wrong." Um, I am very excited to have David Lefebvre, uh, Director of the EdTech Lab at the Imperial College Business School on the line. So welcome, David. Thank you, Sophie. So I, um, I'm the Director of the EdTech Lab at Imperial College Business School, as you said. And essentially, I've been building this team since about 2005. So I was teaching classes at uh, Imperial. I was teaching large face-to-face classes. Um, which really didn't suit me. And I'd always had an interest in, in tech, so I started teaching my classes online. Mm. And um, and luckily, the, the, the management thought this was a good idea, and they gave me a budget to encourage others to do so. And we've been building these um, the capability of the school in online learning since about 2005. And um, although our classes are predominantly face-to-face, um, our team delivers about 180 online courses a year. So we do it um, at, at scale now. And we also have a sort of innovation team looking at new technologies and new new pedagogies. And we also do tech spin-outs. So we've, we've um, launched two successful tech spin-outs too. Mm. So that, 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 that's what we do. 
yeah, I mean, my view is there's, there's, there's niche trends which mm. will sort of have us have an impact in certain um, narrow instances. And I'd put um, you know AR and um, VR into that into that bracket. Um, but then, and there's a whole history of these uh, these technologies going back, you know, from Second Life about ten years ago, right up to mm. AR VR. Now, I mean, they're, they're, they're kind of fun and they attract a lot of attention and people have great hopes for them. And then they tend to settle in a sort of narrow, quite a narrow usage. Um, but I think the exception to that will be, um, uh, yeah, learning analytics. And I'd put AI onto that too, because essentially where we are with AI at the moment is, is a data analysis approach to, mm. to making predictions, making predictions. So that whole idea of AI and, um, big data learning analytics is going to have a very significant impact um, going forward. As discussions around AI intensify, this year we have seen simultaneously a drive to also discuss human intelligence and what makes us innately human. Speaking to our sense of social purpose has become more prominent in educational developments this year, from new university launches to student movements to real-world teaching and learning techniques and product development connecting aspiring change makers, i.e. learners, to their relevant networks. The combination of um, the fourth industrial revolution, which I think can be great uh, if we prepare our young people and all people actually for it, I mean it really, uh, everyone, um, and, but also the existential stuff. I mean, you know, it is real. Um, you know, people are marching and everything else, but we have to take that seriously. But we also have to come up with the solutions for that. And, you know, we don't still don't have the solutions for how we're going to fix all that. So education has to be at the has, has to be at the kind of the core of this, in my opinion. And, you know, whether we and how we apply technology to that, of course, then depends upon what the outcome is that we want. And I often say to people at the moment, because we're also caught up in the 24-hour news cycle, and, you know, what has that orange person said today, and what has that foppy-haired blonde person said today, and or whoever, you know, whatever they're into, you know, we look, we look at it, don't we? Then we put our, uh, our, our you know, our, our, our agreement or our outrage mm. on Twitter, and blah, 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 and we get upset for the whole day. And we're so caught up in the in the, what's happening right now, that what we're not doing is we're not saying to each other, because... Th- that version of society is over. It's like, like Gramsci said in mm. the late 20s, early 30s, you know, the interregnum, you know, the, uh, the, the new could not be born because the old has not yet died. You know, during that time, morbid symptoms will appear. I haven't done that completely, but it's something along those lines. Yeah, Google yeah. It. Um, but he wrote that because he was imprisoned by Mussolini and everything else. And, but I think he could have written that today. Because what he was, t- you know, and that's where we are. The, 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 the old is a status quo and the status quo is dead. Or it's dying. Mm. And so we don't know what the new is. And what we're seeing more and more in now is that EdTech is now starting to look at the, the background of individuals around their culture, around mm. community identity. Because what you'll find is, is that technology never works in silo. And most of the technology that we're trying to infuse kids about is to solve real life problems. So historically it would have been a flash pan thing so lots of ed tech coming into the classroom but it doesn't have no long lasting effect because it doesn't have that sustainable appeal for young people but what we're seeing now is that now companies are thinking about how can ed tech make a social impact alongside teaching the wonderful things in the classroom so i think that the the company or the the ed tech that starts to have real traction in education really looks at the side of social impact and mm-hmm. also looking at the side of, is it meaningful? Can I take this technology beyond the classroom to whether get a career in it or to look at how can I solve problems for myself? So most of what we do is uh, is online, but we wanted to look at ways we could enhance the classroom experience for, the, for our students. And one of the ways of doing that is bringing in guest speakers. Um, but we're, we're we're an international university. We, we consider ourselves to be a sort of part of a, a global alliance of research universities, and many of the guest speakers we want to bring in are a very long way away. And so there's there's high costs involved, both financial costs and environmental costs. And so we're very interested in the idea of using the hologram technology to bring people in from afar into our classroom, whether it be um, academics from other universities or, or guest speakers from industry, etc. 
So that's why we invested in the in the hologram, and um, it's gone very very well. So we recently um, ran a workshop on um, the finances of climate change. And yeah, this was a joint research project between Imperial and the University of Toronto. And um, of course, we couldn't fly the speakers in mm. from Toronto. <laughs> yeah, that would have been so hypocritical. Mm. So we used the hologram technologies to bring in our um, fellow faculty in, a, in an environmental friendly way. So that's one thing we did. Um, another event was called um, Women in Tech. And um, part of um, our ambition at Imperial is to encourage um, more women into, uh, into, into tech. And so we brought in a range of kind of um, uh, people who were able to talk about this topic in an inspirational way from California from, and from New York. And, um, we, we ran a large event um, on, with our students, including discussion panels where half the people were physically present and half of them were, were holograms. So it really does uh, enable you to, you know, to bring in these, um, these guest speakers globally in a relatively efficient way. And I, I use the holograms as a communication medium, which is a bit different to the usual use of holograms, say in medicine, et cetera. So we essentially use it as a much more realistic version of a, of a webinar. And it, yeah, it works really well. Yeah. You know, because why, why would we not have, knowing that we have AI, knowing that any child that's going through school now will be working alongside AIs and using AIs, why isn't the science test a child working with an AI to solve a problem? Or working with a group of, you know, why can't we share our answers in mm-hmm. an exam? Why can't, you know, so if, if we knew that come exam time or the high stakes exam, you are, so it's mandatory, so it's expected that you're going to collaborate with your neighbours and you're going to, you know, draw things down and share answers and download stuff on the internet, find subjects. Because surely now, in the age of untruth, is trying to work out what's true. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, and those are the skills, aren't they? The critical skills that we need to, to be able to work. I mean, this is back to the sort of enterprise skills and, you know, competencies and all those things. And, you know, and people say, well, yes, well, Graham, you, you know, those conversations have been going on since Dewey and before and all that kind of stuff. Read the Charter Curriculum, 1902. You know, we don't, you know, the reason we have to change now is because we've got this massive technological unemployment that's going to be hitting us real soon. And we've seen what the impact of not having employment does mm. to people. We've seen that happening across Europe, across the world right now. It's going to, it's going to get ugly. Plus, we have, you know, the, 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 the sort of holy trinity of, of, of climate change, um, population growth and antibiotic resistance. I mean, that's on its own going to lead to, I mean, just by the most conservative uh, estimates as published in The Lancet, one billion climate change migrants. You know, we're running at about 300 migrants at the moment that generally move around the planet. One billion is like three and a half times population of Europe. And then, you know, are we really going to look the other way? So what's interesting about EdTech is that I'm getting young people for the last probably five years coming into classroom with advanced ed tech skills because Mm -hmm. they probably spent the whole weekend looking at YouTube, how to build a server, how to build their own game engine or to, you know, go viral on social media or create their own YouTube channel. So what we're finding more is that when young people have a purpose or a passion, it takes them to the next level. And what education sometimes doesn't take into consideration how do we harness these skill sets that young people are bringing into classroom to take up to the next level? And what many ed techs do is start from ground zero. And um, what I would like to see more in this ed tech space is how do we match people from where they're at instead of starting from, um, from ground zero, whether it's through coding or whether it's through learning technology, because most of this, even though I'm, I'm so excited about AR and VR, but, you know, there's lots of consoles that have AR and VR and young people are interacting with it on a probably daily basis. So how do we kind of leverage some of those skills and see, show young people, connect, connect the technology to real kind of, whether it's careers, whether it's around, again, social impact or real mm. passion projects. Strongly tied to this development is an increased focus on ethics as we grapple with what it means to live among a coded age and what artificial intelligence means to us as teachers and learners. I think also um, a big thing has been digital responsibility. So I think in the past, 
it's been very much seen as a one department area and that digital skills should be taught by um, IT or computer science teachers in, you know, in the class. But this year we've really embraced this whole idea that there's no hiding now that all students need to have these 21st century skills and actually all teachers in, in across all subjects should be teaching fake news or teaching how to search effectively. So, so that's been a really big part about pushing things across the curriculum for us as well. So coding and programming is, it was introduced because we know that, um, you know, around the world, lots of education systems was really advanced with young people from the age of six onwards learning coding. So we kind of jumped on um, back of that to now introduce it at primary school level. Now, uh, several years in, we are seeing um, it's in the public conscious now that coding is going to be the future. And for us as a computer scientist, we don't teach young people to become programmers or coders. Mm. We teach them to show them that how technology works in today's world. Because this is old little saying is that if you don't learn coding, you become coded. So <laughs> it's one of these things where we're showing young people how your algorithms work, how all of these things work and how does it work in today's world? Because if they're not mindful or careful of how these algorithms and how computer science work, they can actually become manipulated by the technology. So more and more, we teach computer science from that perspective. Now, what we found with computer science and ICT, the former curriculum, was is that ICT showed you how to drive a car in, in an analogy, and with computer science, it showed you what's underneath the bonnet, how it all works. Mm. Now, we still needed to have a fine balance of these technologies and different courses because you don't want to show everyone what happened underneath the bonnet and they don't know how to drive the car. And that's what's happening now is that a lot of the a lot of the young people are coming to school now and they don't know how to use desktop applications because it hasn't right. been part of the um, compulsory part of the curriculum in computer science. So we are seeing different imbalances with the whole kind of landscaping courses. But yeah, I, I, I do like computer science, but we need to just have it in balance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, we've got the election coming up. We've got deep fakes and that kind of manipulation that you talked about and in some countries I think in Finland they have this and everyone always talks about Finland so it's just just an example but um, I think they've got uh, information literacy so you know now the ability for to help young people just to decipher what's truthful what's not um, in a world where you know perhaps truth is going out the window a little bit so do you think we'll sort of see more around uh, you know, actually helping young people decipher uh, what's going on around them in terms of information? Really good question. So we used to say data was the new gold, but now it's trust. Do mm. we trust a lot of these platforms and technology that we're using? So I've worked with a lot of um, organisations around how do we make tech more responsible and how do we give young people enough uh, tools in their toolkit to decipher what is fake news, um, how to you know watch your mental health or mindset when you are looking at different content online, and how to report stuff. How do you flag stuff up if it looks a bit um, dodgy? And these are the things that we need to be training more young people at a very young age how to uh, decipher um, lots of information and content that they're consuming online. So there's lots of grassroots organisations out there that are. Um, coming into schools and showing um, students how to be privy to, you know, fake news and, um, and, and, and viral headlines. How do you kind of spot if it's a lie or, mm. or the truth? But I think ultimately um, it's the bigger companies that need to play a, a more of an active role in terms of supporting that next generation too, because it's their platform. It's, the, it's them um, who are, so-called so driving and regulating the content mm. so we would like to see because it's not worth and this is a bit um, controversial now it's not worth um, a massive uh, company where you've got all of these different they're, they're coming to school um, and we're buying all of their ed tech mm -hmm. uh, products but when we're using their ed tech or uh, their general platforms they're not um, protecting us from the yeah. danger. So there is a big responsibility that these big companies should be playing in terms of what information is sent across their platform outside of the edtech remit 
and what is um, how do they kind of manage this uh, this this now generation of where we need to be managing young people's uh, mental health on these platforms? I think um, another thing that I'm particularly interested in and um, that I'll actually be speaking about um, at OEB in Berlin this year is the ethical implications of AI and advancing tech. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really interested in the idea of um, philosophy and ethical education being really primary to the advancement of technology um, and uh, that advancement happening in a safe way. Um, and I think it's something that a lot of educators have flagged up as something they are concerned about as well, the use of student data and things like that. So um, that's something else that I'm going to be keeping a keen eye on over 2020 is the development in, in ethical education in relation to technology. Um, you know, of course, we are continuing to evolve. I mean, you know, but, but this, this, we were evolving in all kinds of ways. And, but, but the idea that we can upload our consciousness to a computer, just first of all, it's built on a mistake. That believing that our consciousness is the result of a computer or our brain is a computer. Mm. It's quite patently not a computer, not, not in the way that we think of computers. And actually, if we look at history, you know, you go back to, you know, 2000 years ago, we thought, we you know, we, we described ourselves as being made from mud. And then, you know, I think it was, it was a Descartes that came along next and we were, we were pneumatics, hydraulics and all that kind of stuff. So we tend to frame ourselves in the latest technology right. that's yeah. around. And so we think, oh, well, the brain's sort of, you know, so our thinking is like software. So if I get a good psychiatrist or a good psychotherapist, you can just fix my program. <laughs> you're going to be disappointed it's, it doesn't that's not that's not how your brain works i mean it's, it's a big question that shows not long enough but i mean you know i think most good neuroscientists would show you would, would see some of the similarities with computer devices well, because we designed them mm-hmm. um but do they behave you know we don't know what consciousness is and the idea that we're somehow going to create sentient machines i think it's a bit of a leap I mean, you know, machine learning and, and, and very simple sort of simulation type stuff mm. and the kind of, I mean, you know, it will be a lot, I, 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 I don't hold out hopes. I mean, I know a lot of the technocrats out there think we're, you know, we're going to have that um, sentient machine. I think, you know, even if we, sh- even if we could do it, I don't, I, I don't think it will happen. It looks more like Pepper the robot, perhaps. The well, way yeah, and there's nothing <laughs> wrong with a... that. We kind of want all those things. Yeah. I mean, do you know what I mean? I mean, you know, in the Boston Dynamics one, I'm showing some cool videos of mm. those falling over this afternoon and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm all for AI. I'm all for robots, all that kind of stuff. But I think, why are we so busy trying to replace ourselves? I mean, mm. it's like, you know, it's, I, 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 I was at a talk at the World Government Summit this year and I heard this um, futurist bang on and he did it in a very authoritative voice. So he must be right. Um, but, you know, he was kind of just saying, oh, yes, and then we will upload our consciousness and we'll all live on Mars. It's like, why with, would you with want a, to do that? With muscle wastage. I mean, when, and... when, you, when, you, when you upload your consciousness, what is there? Mm. Justin, what if you don't like it when you get there? I mean, I, I, it, I, I, know, I don't think it's really been thought through very well. I think we need some ethicists and some philosophers and some people that actually know about life um, rather than a bunch of boys in Palo Alto that don't get out much. In gilets. <laughs> Probably one of the biggest trends this year is the continued focus on employability, upskilling and reskilling. Our guests share more. I don't know. Um, I've always been a. I've always been fascinated how how people <laughs> tend to think that these these five or four things and they change every year are the trends in education or ed tech, but then they are quite Western West centric <laughs> trends in that sense. So. I would say that those things that I just mentioned, so AI and those stuff, so they don't really work here. So you would, I mean, you would need, need to come over here and see, see what the need is. So from, from, from Southeast Asian point of view, looking at vocational sector, how, do you, how can you create products where, uh, for example, mothers who are staying home, taking care of their kids can learn through a micro learning process at the same time as they're somehow taking care of their family in order to be able to be more employable at some point of their future mm-hmm. rather than just creating a fancy, shiny AI product with the word AI listed on it. So, I mean, that, that, I guess that's a, my example of the 
I like that. complexity I like that. of things. No, it's good. It's good because uh, I think people need reminding um, that things can be very different on the ground. And, and you mentioned sort of, you know, even being outside of the school down the road, you can kind yeah. of start to create an idea of what things are like when they're not, uh, let alone if you're several thousand miles away. So, yeah, um, I think this is, hmm. I think this is very important. The point that I said, said that. So the, the empowerment and employability of especially women in this region would be very important. How do you create tools for those those people? So once again, if I would be an entrepreneur, so someone can take this if they want, but there are thousands and tens of thousands of, of helpers or maids in Southeast Asia working, supporting families uh, who are able to work both husband and wife, and then you have a helper from outside of, for example, Singapore or Hong Kong uh, taking care of the kids. But would it, wouldn't it be nice if you could actually create a tool that supports these helpers in understanding pedagogical models so that they are able to, you know, support the children and their well-being from a research-based of research-based and evidence-based point of view rather than rather than just from their experience and, and their family experience. Mm -hmm. And if they, at the same time, if they would be learning those things, they would be on a path to better employability and higher salary at some point so that they could maybe move back home to Philippines, for example, or then start something else in, in, in future of their career. Me as well, one of the biggest things I've noticed um, is a new focus on workplace skills mm. um, and on the life skills that go with that too. So a focus on creativity, collaboration, resilience. Um, Google's Future of the Classroom report um, came out early October. Um, so that's something I've been I've been looking at, and it uh, highlights eight education trends from around the world. And one of the top ones uh, was workplace skills and workplace prep. Um, so we've actually just done a deep dive into that for for the magazine as well, into um, what workplace skills actually means, how they line up with broader life skills, um, mm -hmm. and what the education sector is doing to advance those. So that's something I found particularly interesting this year. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, um, the education secretary sort of saying we want to be on a par or exceed Germany in, t in terms of vocational skills and, and throwing a lot of investment behind that uh, sort of around the same, same time, wasn't it? September, October, I think. Yeah, that's right. Um, and obviously, Germany's always had, um, it's got an amazing track record with vocational education. Similarly, with countries like Finland, um, yeah, their vocational tracks are are incredible so I'm excited to see how the UK um, pushes that forward. I posted on my social media the other day that um, one of the, the exciting projects that I've done is helping elderly people learn about mm. technology Absolutely, and yeah. about how do we upskill and reskill people that are who, who we deem to be un, unreskillable <laughs> if that's a word. And the biggest thing uh, that we can see in Singapore, and not only Singapore, but the whole of Southeast Asia, is workforce development. Mm. Uh, so Singapore might be a front runner in this region when it comes to that area, how to tackle the big problem of upskilling people in this country when it comes to the developing labor market and the needs that people need to have there. Uh, but then when you look up outside of Singapore, it's, it's huge. So you have a huge growing middle class in Southeast Asia. I think it's the biggest or second biggest after well, it's Africa. Uh, and and uh, those education institutions in these regions who are supposed to be catering for the need of the growing middle class are not able to do it. So they are lagging behind quite badly. and. There's not enough uh, placements, so how do you tackle that problem? Well, one of the good solutions could be edtech in some way. So, so how do you in South? Uh, well, let's take Indonesia. So you have seventeen thousand islands in Indonesia. So how do you actually cater high-level education content to all of those islands? And then, so twenty nineteen, you've reeled off an amazing list. Um, for sort of going forward next year and, and sort of further down the line, are there any other things that you um, are anticipating or kind of keeping on the back burner for the moment, but keeping your eye on? Yeah, I think so. Now, I think this coming year is going to be really exciting um, for us in particular. We've just kind of changed what 
we felt was a passive kind of IT space in our downstairs learning commons, which was just, you know, some Macs. Um, and we've, we've turned it into a maker space. So we've got um, Raspberry Pis and sensors and, and micro bits and um, all kinds of stuff that students can come and be encouraged to just tinker with. And I, th- I think the maker movement has already become huge. But I think for us in um, education, because students are so... They're just so used, like we just said, aren't they? Just putting a device out of their pocket. I think what we need to be is, is to make sure these students are still inquisitive and curious. And, you know, when I was their age, I was hugely curious about the computer, you know, the one BBC computer that we had mm-hmm. at the back of the room. And to a certain extent, that's now gone. So, you know, what we've done is, is strip that back and, and give the students room to just come and experiment and play. So that, that's going to be a large part of our 2020. Um, you know, funny if we're having a conversation about um, how important digital skills are, but actually how how students can be recognised for those. Because mm. I think, you know, the misconception for all of sort of school aged children is that they are um, this awful term that I hate, which is a digital native. I you know, hate it also. It. Yeah, because they, they have all this technology, therefore they must be amazing at it. And, you know, that's not true. They can use it badly. So it'd be really nice if... But sort of my vision for that, hopefully, is that we can actually, you know, give give students um, badges to show that what they're actually competent and capable in. At a time when the entire concept of globalisation is under question, the need for collaboration and the ability of EdTech to provide economies of scale for different teachers and learners to connect and evolve their pedagogies holds true. We've heard a lot about interdisciplinarity, but we are also hearing more about collaboration across schools and universities to provide more flexible learning and accreditation. So, so one of the advantages of online is that um, barriers of uh, geography disappear. You know, so um, what we're really interested in is that um, uh, it, the chances to collaborate between universities increase. So, we've been working on putting together a global. Um, uh, uh, alliance of, um, of business schools from from Melbourne Business School in, in Australia, Singapore Management University, IEBI, ESMT, EDEC in France, um, IV in Canada. This global alliance. We're also committed to um, deliver building, delivering um, very high quality online education. And the idea is that um, this global network will begin to. Um, share courses and share technologies and share mm. pedagogies and really create something new. So a very sort of um, simple um, example of that is that um, n- no business school has ex- expertise in every single area that the students are interested in. Um, so, for example, we have many students at Imperial who are very interested in uh, Asian business. And um, through this alliance, we'll be able to offer students courses at Singapore Management University, for example. In, in, in you know, entrepreneurship in Asia and so on. And so I think for the students, the students will be able to um, stay at their host institution and have their core teaching there, but have the opportunity to to get exposed to knowledge in um, in schools around the world as well. And it builds from there. But um, in online, online is global. And um, we're very interested in this idea of global alliances and uh, global tech. No, it's really fascinating because, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, there were lots of uh, sort of early stage announcements around universities uh, potentially partnering with, with each other and creating sort of almost in inverted commas global universities. And I've also chatted to other universities about this idea of, um, yeah, sort of teaching and, and credit sharing. Um, but it does need the kind of uh, technical backbone and accreditation backbone to make that possible. So it sounds like this is almost like a some of that early stage partnership that's happening as well yeah that's exactly right so we've built our own platform for online learning um so so based on our our, our, our view on online learning is that um uh you should it can easily education first rather than technology first and in, in education there's a whole raft of um things that have been found by educational research over the past hundred years that promote learning um things like experiential learning, action learning, the importance of feedback, the importance of narratives, and so on and so on and so on. And um, what we needed was a platform that enabled people to enact these um, these pedagogies and, 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 and techniques. And so we've built that a platform which enables um, education first, highly educational courses, 
And um, the, the, the alliance we put together have committed to building courses in this manner. And that makes things so much easier for the student from a student experience perspective, that students can have a sort of commonality of um, experience across the, the alliance. And so um, I think having a sort of a shared educational vision and a shared platform uh, makes these alliances much more viable. Then you just have to sort out the issue of um, shared credits, which is a, <laughs> a whole <laughs> other issue. <laughs> um, and does this alliance have a name already? Yeah, it's called the FOAM Alliance. So, so F-O-M-E, the Future of Management Education. For us, um, Plymouth and Rio are becoming um, something called Plymouth City of Learning. Mm. And they are going yeah. down to um, online badging, which was actually a big thing about five years ago. Um, and then it kind of it kind of disappeared a little bit down here. So there's going to be a big push for us um, and Plymouth City Council to start looking at online badging and rewarding students for uh, their digital endeavours so that they have um, almost like a qualification, you know, but in year nine or ten, just to show that they are kind of working um, well with digital technology. Yeah, we had an episode previously with Dr Miranda Mowbray at the University of Bristol, who is uh, developing up a computer science degree with a um, ethics module. Um, And it seems that, and I don't know what you're seeing, but more... Um, curriculum development uh, or whether it's new university launches that are sort of tackling problems with a more interdisciplinary uh, approach to things as well. Absolutely, Um, especially with the recent launch as well of the um, Institute for Ethical AI Mm -hmm. uh, that was launched between um, a few academics like Sir Anthony Selden and Rose Luckin at UCL. Um, So I think that was a huge move in the marrying, if you like, of um, edu- uh, ethical and philo- philosophical education with the harder technological side of things, which I think over recent decades has been um, have been separated in our education sector. Mm. Our, our, our alliance is formed around the shared platform and shared educational vision. And um, we launched it in Feb 2018. You know, yeah, there's 180 courses to, in total across the schools but sharing becomes super easy when you've got the same platform. Going back to technology, VR and AR continues to evolve and adapt. But I think one of the biggest things that I'm seeing at the moment is around this VR and AR. How does it really impact educators? Can we really flip the classroom by um, young people engaging with education outside of the classroom in a very uh, virtual and augmented way? And in terms of apps, I'm playing around a little bit at the moment with CoSpaces, which is a kind of like a VR um, app, which you can, I'm, I'm trying to get our library, our learning commons kind of mapped out so that they can see where the different books are and stuff like that. So I'm having a lot of fun with that one at the moment. Finally, the importance on co-creation with educators and learners and research to provide an evidence base for developments continues to underpin future tech, which works. There you go. And I think that there's so much that we can learn from the older generation around just how things work. So with ed tech, um, one thing you can't get away from is like wisdom and experience. Mm. And no matter how good ed tech is, it cannot beat the wisdom experience of people that have been through certain parts of the education system. So, again, we need to hear their voice more and more around where things are going and how we really value them in this ecosystem. I mean, it sounds so obvious now to um, include the teachers, but um, actually at the time that was you know, quite revolutionary. And still in terms of having educators sort of define and co-create in a really authentic way. So, you know, actually mm. having entrepreneurs in the school aware of the you know restrictions and limitations and complexities and, how to keep things simple is just, you know, it's, it's such a powerful idea. Yeah. So, and I, I don't think it's it, entrepreneurs usually they, they think that, okay, if I just understand uh, what they do with mathematics or English language or whatever tool they mm. are creating, then I understand what the schools needs. But that's actually not the point. They need to spend time in the school. They need to feel, touch, smell, mm. even taste the school air in a way uh, in order to get... Uh, get an understanding what's what's going on so with these models when we create the created the, the test bed or we, we call it an innovation platform in finland because 
learners and educators are not test subjects; they are innovators. So mm -hmm. therefore, I don't think that uh, they should be that that should be called a test bed. It should be called an innovation platform. But it's really important they are involved, and, and the entrepreneurs needs to they need to spend time in the classroom in order to understand the busyness the daily life in the classroom, what exactly. kind of cacophony it can be when, when <laughs> you have 20 kids running around. So you can't really design edtech products that have 20 different buttons before you can use them in the classroom. You, you need to have one. Yeah. In terms of softwares, um, really, we've been all about making teachers' life easier. Um, we've been using technology for a long time at DHSB and been a Google reference school for about five years now. But this year was all about getting every teacher a Chrome device and just making sure that they are kind of seamlessly using them so that they can just reduce their workload as much as possible. Um, Google have got a lot of, and not just Google, but we're looking at auto marking tools now. Um, ones also that will check for plagiarism on the Internet. You know, that just frees up masses of time. And, and we're really moving down towards a personal or personalized learning route so that if we could put all our resources online, we can actually tailor them specifically to students. Um, and we could even do that using some of the um, software out there so that, you know, if they're getting certain questions wrong, we can actually point them in the right direction for self-directed learning. So that's been really big for us this year. Is, is this idea that what you're trying to disrupt is teaching? What you're trying to do, you know, what, what, the problem is we don't have enough teachers. Oh, I know, we'll replace them with an AI. Hmm. Well, that just means you just don't understand teaching. You know, I mean, look, if you, if you I mean, it's that old saying, isn't it? If you, you know, if you can be replaced by an AI, you probably should be. Yeah. Because you're not a very good teacher. Just I mean, good teachers, and most are, and I know some, I mean, I've been in a bit of a bubble, to be honest. I just know some fantastic teachers. But most teachers, you know, all teachers join the, the, the profession for the right reason. Um, but they leave in, the good ones leave in droves because they realise they can't do mm. what they thought they, they were going to do because it's sort of being forced into a, into, a, into, a role, into a role of content delivery, which is a horrible thing. I mean, mm. that's not what they signed up for. Um, but that's because we are, they are being governed by this old model, which is scarcity and copyright of, of books, um, and then a measurement industry, which is also owned by the same people. So can you imagine, I mean, could you imagine an environment world where big pharma, you know, the big pharmaceutical companies, own the hospital and pay all the doctors and nurses? I mean, the face-to-face, -face, even though people say it hasn't changed in Socrates, <laughs> you know, it mm. has. It's, evol mm. it's evolved steadily over... A very long period, you know, probably you know, two hundred years in in earnest, and um, we, we've arrived at um, certain pedagogies that, that work in the face-to-face -face classroom. The digitization of um, of the digitization, of course, is 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 new. You know, universities have only been doing it in earnest for the past few years, and they're still only really making a start. Some final thoughts from our guests to end. Um, I think 2019, and, and obviously my perspective comes from, from one school, but also some of the outreach work that we, we do do. But I think a big thing for this year for many schools has been low-cost technology. Mm. Um, we are certainly moving away from um, many IT suites, you know, that are, are managed and, and server rooms with expensive air conditioning. And we've really harnessed the kind of power of cheaper Chromebook devices. Um, our school is actually thinking about the journey now to actually being completely serverless so we've really embraced that kind of change and even looking at um neverware which is cloud-based software so we can run chrome os on our old um pcs so basically we can just put a chrome os on them which has been amazingly transformative really and the accessibility now for um digital technology across the school is almost at a one-to-one -one um, level so so that's been huge for us I think this year I mean one of the, the massive benefits I think you know with a Chromebook solution perhaps is that we're looking at no lost time in lessons at all and a big hurdle for lots of teachers in the past will be well we quite like to use an IT room to, to trial this you know this new geography technology for example but you know I don't want to sit there for 20 minutes while the students log in yeah, um, yeah. So that's a huge barrier now where we can just get Chromebooks out open and, and off we go. I mean, the idea of going to an IT suite is quite baffling because just in our everyday life, like if we had to search the Internet, just sort of getting up and 
attending a different room and switching on everything. It seems like something out of the, um, I'm trying to remember, is it the the film with uh, which is looking at Alan Turing and <laughs> they sort of have that yeah. giant computer? It sort of reminds me a bit of that or something. But, no, um, you're, you're so right, actually. I hadn't actually thought of it like that, but it does seem such a ridiculous thing to do. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for listening in and huge thank you to all of my guests and Bet for supporting the series and to Redway Networks for sponsoring this episode. Whoop, whoop. You can continue the conversation online at hashtag edtechpodcast and hashtag bet2020 at podcastedtech or at bet underscore show on all the social medias or for all the show notes, including resource and reading recommendations, it's www.theedtechpodcast.com. And for more future tech and trends content, check out the Bet 2020 programme, which features some of this week's podcast guests. Go to betshow.com, where you can also register for the event in January. Have a great week. Bye-bye. For anyone listening, it's half past eight, so it is true. Uh, educators have extremely long days, and I, I absolutely appreciate your time this evening, and thank you again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Sophie. Great. Okay. Thanks so much, David. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.